Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more Where Am I To Go. First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I To Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast, and so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been. Also, I really am interested in listener feedback. I have an email address at where am I to go podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is where am I to go podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear some of the listeners' comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do. I'm on kind of a limited travel schedule as far as uh, the way that I travel and where I go, but if there's something extremely interesting, I would definitely do my best to build a trip around it. And the last thing, and and the latest thing, is that I now have a Patreon account, where if you want to hear the podcast early, you can go to Patreon forward slash Lauren Alberts, sign up for three, five, ten, whatever dollars, if you were willing to support what I do and help us with our travel expenses and some of that kind of stuff. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. But what we're going to do is, right now I have several podcasts that are banked, I guess you could say. I'm on, I think, number 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, and I've got close to 35 that I have waiting to go out. I only put out about every week because I want to be able to keep a nice steady stream and not have a point in time when we have to shut down like a lot of other podcasts do for season one, season two. I'd like to keep this thing going year round. And I've been traveling quite a bit and have been hitting quite a few interesting places. We've been to a tattoo museum. We've been to the beach and have gone to several uh, tourist attractions there, an underground tour. We did a cannery tour. We've just done all kinds of things, and I would love for you to be able to hear those early. So if you sign up with the Patreon, as soon as my editor Steve gets these things ready to go out, they will be put up on the Patreon page. And again, I would really appreciate your support. Now that I've got those things out of the way, I hope to hear from you, and I hope you keep on listening. And now, let's get on with the podcast. Today I'm going to do something just a little bit different than what I normally do. I recently took a trip out to Oregon, the Oregon coast, and I had a really good time. It is an area where I grew up. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, back in, well, I was born in 61, so I left in 82 and moved to Wyoming, and have lived in the Wyoming and Montana area since having moved out in 1982. So I was raised in Portland, and I spent quite a bit of time down on the coast. My dad was from Astoria, Oregon, and so I was able to have a lot of good memories and good times. And then also we would always take trips uh, other than uh, visiting grandma and grandpa and that type of stuff. We would take trips down to the coast and, and hit lots of different areas. Well, I had the opportunity to go back. My nephew was having a wedding, and so we decided we were going to go back to his wedding in Salem, Oregon, and decided we'd spend a little bit of time on the coast. And while I was driving, I was thinking, you know, throughout the years I've had so many people say that they were going to take a trip on the Oregon coast and how much fun it was going to be. And then when they come back, I say, well, did you see this site or did you see this site? And the answer is always, no, I didn't know that was there. So I decided that 
most of my time was spent on the northern Oregon coast, and so I thought that I would go ahead and put together a podcast highlighting some of my favorite things that were on the Oregon coast and things that we did and, and places to go. Now, like I said, most of my experience has been in the Tillamook, Seaside, Astoria, Newport, Lincoln City area. This last trip, and, and it's only been a couple of times that I've taken 101 down further than Newport. Uh, we went to Florence, we went to Coos Bay, we went to several different places. I don't really know that area as well as I do the, the northern part of the coast, so that part of the podcast is going to be rather weak. But if you were on your way out to Astoria, or the northern part of the Oregon coast, there are some things that I would highly recommend a person do, a person see, a person experience. <clears throat> so, I'm putting together this podcast. It's just me talking. I don't have anybody to converse with, which is a little bit hard for me. And, and hopefully this all comes out good for you guys. And hopefully it's informative and, and you guys find some things that you might be interested in seeing. So let's go ahead and start. Astoria is about two to two and a half hours from Portland, Oregon. You've got a couple of different ways to get there. You can go through Beaverton and Hillsboro, or you can follow the Columbia River on down. If you follow the Columbia River on down, there is a ferry that crosses the Columbia River that is always fun to take, and that is... I can't remember what the name of the town is. You can look it up on your way. I, I, it wasn't something that we did this trip, but it crosses over to the Oregon, or from Oregon to Washington, or, or vice versa. And I think it leaves on the hour every hour, uh, and then half hour on the Washington side coming back to Oregon. If you haven't ever been on a ferry, it's small, holds maybe five or six cars, if I remember correctly. But that's something to do kind of on your way if you're going down the Columbia River instead of out what they call the Sunset Highway, which goes through Beaverton and Hillsboro and then takes you on into, well, you can you, there's a road that forks and you can either go to Tillamook or you can go to Seaside. But we're going we're gonna to start off at Astoria and talk a little bit about Astoria. Astoria is one of the oldest towns on the Pacific Coast. And it sits right at the mouth of the Columbia River, where it goes into the ocean. It's maybe six or seven miles from the ocean, as far as traveling up the river. And the Columbia Bar, which is where the river hits the ocean, is an extremely dangerous section of water. But Astoria was a fishing town and a port town, and my... Dad was a longshoreman, and he worked down on the docks, and so it was always fun going down to Astoria with him as a kid and hearing the stories of the different docks and the different ways that things worked. And we, like I said, my grandmother lived there, so we did spend a lot of time in Astoria. But there's some definitely worthwhile things to see if you are in Astoria, and they're all within, let's say, 10, 12 miles of Astoria. You've got Seaside, which is a very well-known tourist town. They've got an aquarium there, and it's a fun place if you enjoy the tourist-type shopping and enjoy the beach atmosphere and some of that kind of stuff. It's always very crowded. When we were kids, it wasn't quite as crowded, but they've got lots of nice little shops they used to have a candy shop there i don't know if it's still there it was so crowded we didn't even stop this trip and just lots of homemade stuff and lots of art and lots of uh, fun it's it's just a really fun fun town and that is where lewis and clark when they came down to the oregon coast on their exploration they made what they called a salt cairn there. And they have a reproduction salt cairn where they would take the seawater and bring it up and boil it out in order to have the salt residue left over. That is where that activity happened. But let's get back to Astoria. 
the, so you take the, the road down the coast, or you take from Seaside and you head on up, you hit Astoria, and Astoria is built on a hill, and it's, it's pretty steep. We did a couple of podcasts there that you could go back and listen to. They had the underground tour, and they also had Pier 39. It was extremely fun. And the guys that put that on are a lot of fun to be around, and, and it was a great experience. I'm sure you'll enjoy that podcast. Pier 39 was a pier that goes out over the river, and it was an old fishing pier. And they've got a lot of neat little shops in there, along with a museum and some of that kind of stuff. But the reason I'm bringing this up is Astoria was built over the river, set out on pilings or piers and the whole town was built out there it burned down three times and they finally blocked off the water and was able to build on land but straight off of the land is really steep hills that climb on up quite high above the river level and at the top of these hills is something called the Astoria Column. It was built in 1926 in a collaboration between the Great Northern Railroad and the great-grandson of John Jacob Astor, who was very instrumental in Astoria with the fur trade and some of that kind of stuff. He died, if I remember right, on the Titanic. But his uh, great-grandson, Vincent Astor, was involved in the building of this. The Astor Column stands on top of a hill, I think, that's probably six to 800 feet above the sea level, and then it goes up 125 feet. So it's 125 feet tall, and it's round. And on the outside are murals, and these murals depict the progression and the settlement of Astoria. It starts off with Native Americans in the forest, and then goes to John Gray discovering the mouth of the Columbia. And then the murals progress through the fur trade and the trappers, and it continues on up until the railroad comes in to Astoria. And so it covers the whole timeline, but in order to do it, you've got to walk all the way around this column three or four times to catch all of the murals and the wraps as it goes up. At the top, there's a little dome with a walkout platform. And when it is open, it wasn't open when we were there because of COVID. But when it is open, there's 164 steps going in a spiral staircase that goes up to the top. And when you get up there, you can see everything for miles and miles and miles. It's an absolutely beautiful view. And there's so much, just so much area there that you can see because of the way that it's situated. And so that's one of the, one of the main things that people seem to miss when they're hitting an Oregon coast trip is the opportunity to, to get to that vantage point and see all of the country that's around there. You can see all of the bays. You can see the Columbia River heading out. You can see the ships in the river. It's just a really neat place. Highly recommended that if you're hitting Astoria, that you definitely go see the Astor Column. Another thing that's really cool is they've got Fort Stevens State Park. I think it's about six miles to the west of Astoria. And Fort Stevens State Park has lots of really cool things. Fort Stevens was built near the end of the Civil War. And it was named after a slain Civil War general and the first Washington Territory governor named Isaac Stevens. It was built in 1963 and it was in use until about 1947. But the thing that's really interesting about Fort Stevens is on the night of June 21st or 22nd, 1942, a Japanese sub was patrolling off of the Pacific coast and it fired 17 shells from a 14 centimeter deck gun and that made Fort Stevens the first military installation 
on the continental United States to be under enemy fire since the War of 1812. No damage was done to the fort, but I guess that the projectiles did hit the backstop on the baseball field. Now, Fort Stevens is really cool to this day because of the concrete installation that was there. They had some massive guns pointed out into the Pacific to protect the, the port of Astoria, to patrol the, the coast along uh, the, northern, the northern coast. And the, all of the concrete installation is still there. You can still see the holes where the big guns sat, where they pivoted and turreted. They've got the different uh, quarters where there's some fireplaces in, in some of the corners. And there's lots of rooms down underneath. And then they've got the lookout uh, section where you would stand with your binoculars and look out over the ocean, seeing what uh, was maybe out there as far as enemies. Now, this is all in concrete, and there's concrete staircases going up several different ways. It's kind of a mirror image for it, as they had a gun, let's say, to the north and a gun to the south. And the way that they would bring the ammunition and stuff up from the lower storage areas, the lower magazines, and bring them up were identical. And so you've got two separate gun setups with the same kind of storages underneath so it kind of mirror images itself and then has the the lookout post uh, stationed right in the middle you can walk all over this and have for been eight, for years i used to go down there with my dad i always found it totally fascinating and a lot of fun just because there was lots of stairs to run up and down lots of concrete rooms to go check out you know, you can walk into one, then walk back into another. They've got a long concrete sidewalk outside that's open. And when you look down it, you see all the posts coming down the side. It's probably four or five foot wide. But it looks like one of those old, uh, old castle type things where you can look down the long uh, hallway. And it's kind of boxed in just by pillars and open on the sides. But Fort Stevens itself is just really, really cool. But something else that's in Fort Stevens State Park is the Peter Iredale shipwreck. And the Peter Iredale was a four-masted sailing iron ship built in 1890. It was 285 feet long. And in 1906, it was coming up the coast and ended up in a real strong windstorm and ended up beaching itself before it got to the mouth of the Columbia. This happened at 3.20 a.m. in the morning of October 25th, and there was 27 crew and two stowaways that were on the ship, and there were no deaths. I think it probably just kind of gradually pushed its way in, beached itself, and everybody was able to escape. I've read different reports and seen different pictures that people from Warrington, which is just a small community outside of Astoria, were there early in the morning to help the people off the ship and to give them housing and to get them warm and all of that type of stuff. But that ship was never removed from the beach. And when I was a kid, you used to be able to see quite a bit more of it. But now what's basically left is you can see the bow. The bow is still intact. It's now a skeleton because most of the iron has rusted off. But most of the, the inner structure, the beams, you can tell it was definitely a ship. And when I was a kid, I used to be able to see the masts that were had fallen off and were laying in the sand. That is now pretty much gone. But you can still see some iron pieces back 150, 200 feet that are sticking out of the sand. It's just a, a really cool place, especially for kids, to be able to go see a shipwreck. It's very photogenic. If you Google Peter Iredale, Astoria, Oregon, you'll be able to see some pictures of it. And I think it's very well photographed just because of what it is. It's 
a place that you definitely need to go see. The beach is a very nice beach there, a uh, very nice parking area. And it's just something I'd encourage people to go do just because. It's, it's a cool place. The other thing that's right there with Fort Stevens is Fort Clatsop. Fort Clatsop is where Lewis and Clark in, in 1806 uh, wintered. They had traveled all the way from the East Coast on their exploratory uh, mandate, or, or they were to find the other side of the continent, and they ended up following the rivers, the Columbia River being the last one. They followed it down to the mouth, and then they set up Fort Stevens. And Fort Stevens is where they wintered. They had a very tough winter, and it was cold, miserable. Uh, the coast is rainy a lot. In fact, just as a little tidbit here, I would suggest going to the coast in October. It seems like every time I've gone the first part of October, the coast has been absolutely beautiful. I've been down there in the summer, and it hasn't been so beautiful. You have wind, you have rain, you have... Uh, just a lot of conditions just because that's the way coastal regions are but they went uh, lewis and clark wintered at fort clatsop they built a fort they traded with the indians they fished they went to the seaside area which was a few miles south of them and they made their salt cairn to be able to bring salt back with them on the trip back home and they've got a very nice museum there, visitor center. They've got a recreation of what the fort looked like. I think the fort deteriorated. Maybe it burned. I'm not sure. But they do have a recreated fort with the log buildings and, and a couple of carved out canoes from big trees. And so it's a really nice place to visit. Again, I would strongly suggest if you are in the Astoria area, hitting some of those places on the beach and some of those historical sites. Now, Astoria also has a very, very, very nice museum called the Maritime Museum. And they've got what is known as the Columbia Lightship Park there. <clears throat> I did not go to that museum this trip. I'd been to it several times before. It covers a lot of the maritime history. There's maps of the shipwrecks that are off of the mouth of the Columbia. And there are a lot of them because it is such a treacherous body of water coming into the Columbia River from the ocean. They've got jetties going out both sides that they constantly maintain. And they always have to dredge with a big dredge ship so that the sand is cleared so that the ships can come in and have a good channel. The Coast Guard has a major training facility at the mouth of the Columbia. As the water goes out the Columbia, and I just learned this from the uh, podcast I did with Pier 39. I went out with or went through the museum there with Peter and Peter was explaining this to me, that there are certain times of the day when the tide is going out or the tide is coming in and the Columbia River is going out, that there is a clash for a few hours and they will close what's known as the Columbia Bar Down because you end up with rolling breakers out there. And then if the weather is bad or the tides are extremely heavy, that will get even more intense. And so the Coast Guard has a training facility where they practice their out-of-sea rescue, their hurricane, their all of those types of, of extreme weather situations they train for there at the Columbia Bar. And supposedly it's some of the most intense training you can get. Well, if the Coast Guard's using it for that, you can just imagine how many ships from past years, you know, from the 1800s, 1900s, that didn't have the Coast Guard sitting there waiting to rescue them, how many ships in inclement weather or just extreme conditions ended up sinking. And there are lots and lots of ships, and the, the maps that they have in there showing the shipwrecks are just really amazing because 
I'm guessing there was probably three or four hundred shipwrecks off of the Columbia Bar. But the Maritime Museum also has what's known as the Columbia Light, light Ship. And the light ship used to go out to what they called Buoy 10. I was told this trip that they don't have a light ship out there anymore. They just have a buoy. But the light ship used to go out to Buoy 10, anchor, and stay there all the time for navigational purposes for ships wanting to find the channel and, and the entry into the Columbia River. The sailors or crew members or whatever of the light ship, if I remember correctly from stories when I was a kid, would go out and stay for two months at a time out there on the light ship. And they just were basically a navigational point for, for ships to be able to come in and to be able to monitor what was going on. They do have one of the Columbia light ships parked there at the Maritime Museum. It's a very interesting place and probably one of the best museums on maritime rescue, uh, shipwrecks, and just history. So I would strongly recommend the Maritime Museum. Something else about Astoria is that it's kind of known as Hollywood North. They've filmed an awful lot of films there, so if you're a film buff, uh, you might be interested to know that Kindergarten Cops, the school that that was filmed in, is in Astoria. Goonies was filmed there. The house, I guess, is now closed due to vandalism and some of that kind of stuff. But the Clatsop County Jail uh, had, a, had a part in the Goonies movie. I don't know that I ever saw Goonies. Uh, Short Circuit was filmed there. Come See Paradise was filmed there, and both of those had scenes from the Clatsop County Jail as well. Uh, Free Willy, the, uh, I think it was Free Willy 3, was, was filmed in Astoria. And the site where Free Willy goes on out and jumps over the barricade to freedom, that happened in a little town uh, on the Columbia called Hammond, which is, again, about five miles uh, west of Astoria. So just lots and lots of things to do in Astoria itself. <clears throat> then if you leave Astoria and you start heading south, like I had mentioned before, the next town down would be Seaside. And Seaside, again, is a, is a very nice little tourist town. Lots of things to do there. If you're looking to spend a day just doing touristy things, Seaside is definitely a place to go. I found that it was a little too crowded for my taste but it's still a lot of fun. There, then as you continue down 101 to the south, you pass by quite a few scenic areas. 101 kind of weaves in and out along the coast. You, you get some really nice scenic areas and then you get come inland quite a bit to where you don't see anything but trees and then you kind of bow back on out to see the beach again. There's some nice rock bluffs. There's a lot of nice overlooks that uh, you can see the rocks in the ocean with the waves beating against it. And the Oregon coast, I took a trip out to Maine and I was, I was pretty disappointed because in Maine the, and, and kind of all the way down the, the west coast, it seemed like all of your breakers coming in were like standing on the edge of a lake. You know, they'd, they'd come in and they'd maybe roll just as they hit the shore. But in Oregon, the breakers start out maybe 200 yards, and they're big breakers. They're, they're uh, 8, 10, 12 feet tall, and they break on over with a nice roll, a lot of roar, and they come on into the beach, you know, with, with maybe five or six cycles of, of overcaps on the waves. So I was kind of disappointed with the, with the ocean in Maine. Not that Maine wasn't pretty. I really did enjoy Maine. But the ocean was just kind of a disappointment because I was used to the big breakers. Like you see in movies where surfers are surfing, you know, off of the California coast and that type of stuff. That's, that's what the breakers are like most of the way down the Oregon coast. So when you see these pullouts and you can see the rocks down below, you can see the waves crashing up against the rocks and 
it's just uh, uh, really pretty views all the way on down. But as you head south from Seaside, uh, you end up at Cannon Beach. And Cannon Beach is probably one of the more scenic beaches, probably one of the most photographed beaches on the Oregon coast. They've got what they call Haystack Rock that sits out, oh, maybe two, three hundred yards into the ocean. It's a great big rock that just is there. And in 1846, there was a Navy schooner called the Shark that crashed. And they ended up finding a cannon on the beach from that crash. The cannon is inside the museum there in, Can in uh, Cannon City, Cannon Beach City. And I, I remember here a few years later that two more cannons were discovered on the beach in 2008. They had some really strong tides that took a lot of the beach sand away. And when it did, they found two more cannons. And they supposed that they were from that same U.S. Navy schooner. So there's been several cannons discovered there on Cannon Beach. And that's the reason that it, it got its name. And again, it's a, it's a pretty touristy town. I've never really spent a lot of time in Cannon Beach. I've, I've been on Cannon Beach, but... It was usually pretty populated and, and a lot of people there. So we would always go to a beach that's further south by, oh, maybe another 15, 20 miles. And now you got to remember, the Oregon Coast Highway 101 is a very slow highway. Lots of turns, lots of traffic, and it, I think the speed limits are all 45 miles an hour. Lots of little towns, lots of little coastal towns. Uh, lots to see and do. But we always stayed at a little place called Rockaway when I was a kid, when we'd just go down to the beach, not visiting relatives or whatever. And Rockaway was always a nice little beach, but we'd go to about two miles south of there to what was called the Barview Jetty. And that is a jetty made of rocks that goes out into the ocean to break up the water. And I can't remember what the name of the river is there, but it's by Garibaldi, and the Barview Jetty is a state park. You've, they've got camping there and everything else. No fee to go in and park and go out on the jetty. But we used to go out on the jetty and find starfish and sea anemones and, and crabs and all that kind of stuff, uh, lots of mussels. When the tide's way out, you can get down in there and you can see a lot of that stuff out on the rocks. The rocks are huge, pretty easy to navigate. You can, you can walk on them pretty easily. And then the beach to the north of Barview Jetty is a beach that's usually very unpopulated. You can go down there just about any time I've ever been down there. There's only been maybe 10 or 12 other people. So it's a really nice beach just for more of a seclusive uh, uh, walk on the beach where it's a little bit more private, a little bit uh, less populated. And I've always really enjoyed the Barview Jetty and the beach off to the north. Then you continue south. There's, again, several very scenic overlooks where you can see rocks and, and water hitting on the rocks and some of that. And you end up at Tillamook. And Tillamook is a name that was derived from the Native Americans. And it was discovered in 1788 by Robert Gray. He anchored there in the Tillamook Bay. And Tillamook, of course, most of you are going to know the name Tillamook because of the ice cream and the cheese. Tillamook is very famous for its cheese. It is now a farmer-owned co-op, and they've got a very nice facility there <clears throat> very nice packing plant cheese making plant and the tour of the Tillamook cheese factory is something that you've got to do if it's open COVID had it closed down when we were there you could go up and buy ice cream but as far as taking a tour they were not allowing that but if they are allowing it you can go in and watch the whole cheese making process you can watch the packaging process. 
uh, all of the conveyor belts and all of the wrapping machines and all of that stuff are in full view. They've got nice big glass panels with a deck so you can overlook how everything works. And it's really fascinating the way that these machines work and the way that they were developed in order to bring everything around and, and give us the products that we have in our stores now. They will take you through the cheese making process from milking the cow. When I was a kid, and I think that it's still there last time that I was at Tillamook, they had a milking machine hooked up to a fiberglass cow and it simulated the milking and would run the milk through the machine and then they'd take it all the way into the cheese making process. They have their big vats that you can see, uh, big stainless steel vats that are churning the curds and all of that kind of stuff. It's fully automated and it's just a, it, it's a really neat tour if you can get in there to do it. And then of course they have their gift shop where you can buy a hundred different flavors of ice cream. You can buy the Tillamook jerky or pepperoni sticks or whatever you want that way along with all of the cheeses. And Tillamook has really, really grown since I was a kid. We used to go there when I was young. Dad would take us and we would go do the tour of the Tillamook Cheese Factory. And it used to be that the men would be walking down the the big trays of cheese stirring the curds and working things with rakes and and that kind of stuff now it's all done automatically but it was always fun when i was a kid and it's still fun as an adult the other thing that is super super cool highly recommended and we did a podcast there is the tillamook air museum and Listen to the podcast, you'll get a whole lot more detail. But briefly, what the Air Museum is, is in World War II, they were looking for Japanese subs off of the Oregon coast. And so they had several dirigibles or blimps, and they were stationed there in Tillamook. So they have these buildings that are, I think they're 300 yards long, 300 feet tall, and I can't remember how wide it was, but it would hold nine blimps if they were stacked in there properly, if you can even imagine how big of a building that is. And that's what the Air Museum is housed in. They've got pictures of airplanes flying through the hangars from one door through the other. These doors are huge. And we're not talking a little Cessna, we're talking about a small military plane, but still a plane of any size flying through a hangar is just an unbelievable thing. And it's amazing, you get in there to the Air Museum and they've got all these great big planes and it doesn't look like there's even anything in there. It, it's, just a, it's just an amazing building and it's all wood structure. Again, listen to the podcast on the Tillamook Air Museum to get more details. And I don't know when that's coming out exactly uh, as far as order and, and right now I have a few banked. So it might be a little while before it comes out. This may come out before that, it may come out after. It just kind of depends on what the editor and producer and I seem to think uh, is the best way to release these things. So Tillamook, definitely a stop. You got to do it. And it's just a lot of fun. Also right there in the Tillamook area is a beach called Oceanside Beach. It's a little community. We went to Oceanside Beach and went on down for a walk just because it was close to where we were spending the night there in Tillamook. And as we were walking down the beach, we got to the end, there's this great big rock outcropping that's a, a cliff. It's, it's, it's huge. It goes up probably 300, 400 feet. And in the bottom of this cliff was a tunnel or an opening. And we kind of looked at it and sat down on a couple of pieces of driftwood. And we're just sitting there contemplating things. And it was really funny because people kept walking into this tunnel and they'd never come back. And I'm going, what in the world is going on? This is a, 
uh, twilight zone moment, you know? I mean, people walk into that tunnel and they don't ever return. And I watched this for about a half hour, curious as all get out, but enjoying the relaxing time I had sitting there on the uh, driftwood. And finally, some people were headed that direction. I says, okay, curiosity has me. So I went and asked them, I says, so where does that tunnel go that you're headed towards? And I explained the twilight zone theory, and she kind of laughed at me. And she says, no, it just goes to the beach on the other side. And I said, oh, okay, because the cliff comes out into the ocean, and, and the waves are beating up against it, so you can't go around the tip of the of the cliff. So... We went back and walked through with them, and when we got to the other side, there were a bunch of people out there bent over, picking things up, and it looked like a bunch of chickens in the barnyard. So I finally had to let curiosity get me again, and I walked on over, and I says, what in the world are you guys looking for here, all bent over and scratching around like chickens? And they said, well, this area of the beach right here has agates on it. So you go through the tunnel, you get to the other side of the beach, and then it's really rocky on the other side of the cliff. And for an area of about maybe 100, 150 yards, there was a whole bunch of rocks that just keep washing up. And right there in that particular area are agates. We ended up finding probably 15 or 20 agates amongst all of the other people. And it was just kind of a, a fun little deal. The tunnel was probably, oh, 150 feet through. And it, it's a nice tunnel. You can see the sight, uh, light on the other end of the tunnel. And it was just a lot of fun walking around picking up agates. And like I said, there were, there were a few people there. It wasn't super crowded, but most of the people that were on that other side were looking for the agates. And then it turns into sand beach again and then goes into a whole bunch more rocks. So we walked on down uh, the beach and only ran into another person or two on the way down and got into those other rocks. There's some neat caves back in there, a lot of uh, rocks to climb around on. It was just a really, really scenic, pretty area. Highly recommended Oceanside Beach. Then we continued south even further to Lincoln City and Newport. And like I said, you're getting beyond my my scope of, of lots of expertise, but Lincoln City and Newport are both really interesting towns. Just north of, of there, they've got Depot Bay, and at Depot Bay, they've been seeing a lot of whales. So I was told that if you had a pair of binoculars and a spotting scope or something like that, you stood a really good chance at certain times of the day to be able to find uh, whales playing around. So that's definitely worth a, a look into and, and worth a thought. But Lincoln City and Newport, they're kind of sister cities. They're, oh, I don't know, 10 miles apart. Lincoln City was always a really fun place as a kid. They had a place there called Pixie Land, which was kind of a, an amusement park. It was very small, but it was it was always fun. That's no longer there. Now Lincoln City is more of kind of a touristy shopping destination. They've got some outlets there and some of that kind of stuff. Newport, on the other hand, has a really cool historic bayfront downtown area. Lots of really neat little stores. They still have some of the fishery stores there. They've got a bay that has lots of really neat uh, fishing boats and sailing boats and ocean-going boats and all of that kind of stuff there. It's just the the typical boat mooring bay area that, that you would see in a lot of uh, ocean or, or bay-type pictures. It's a very picturesque area. They've got a super cool bridge that crosses over the river there uh, before it gets into the ocean. And it's just a really, really pretty area and a lot of things to do. They've got a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum there. They've got, uh, like I said, lots of cool old type stores. It's just a, a neat area. They've got a big aquarium. Uh, they've got a big aquatic, oceanic uh, research facility there. And it's definitely worth the visit. And... You know, they've got lighthouses along the coast. Uh, there's several of them. We visited one or two. But 
if you're a lighthouse person, I would strongly recommend Googling lighthouses along the Oregon coast. They are very scenic, very pretty, very picturesque, and a lot of fun to go and see the, the lighthouses. There's one called Umpqua Lighthouse. And again, when we stopped there, there were people whale watching, saying that the whales had been seen off of uh, the bay there. So you might be able to see whales in that area also. Then we continued south down to Florence. And Florence has a whole bunch of sand dunes. They've got... Uh, it's, it's really a popular recreational area for ATVs, four-wheelers, dune buggies, and the such. And it's a nice little town, a neat little community. Again, a lot of little coastal-like shops. And I was looking at some things about Florence, and I remember a story from when I was a kid. In fact, I've got the newspaper article and a scrapbook that I've saved since I was a kid because I was saving lots of different things as a kid, and sometimes I guess you just hang on to stuff like that. But in 1970, they had a whale wash up on shore just outside of Florence and it was stinking pretty bad they didn't really know what to do with this whale so the Department of Transportation in Oregon decided that the best way to get rid of this whale was to stick 40 tons of dynamite underneath it and just blow it up maybe I'm off it may have been four tons it was a lot of stinking dynamite either way but they dug a hole underneath the the shore side of the whale. They put all of this dynamite underneath it, and then they blew it up. And instead of the whale blowing out to sea to be eaten by the seagulls and the crabs and all of that kind of stuff, the whale blew up in all directions, crushing a car that was over 300 yards away and rained down whale blubber and stink on all the people that were there. Now, if you want to see a real interesting video, go to YouTube and Google whale blow up in Oregon. They've got the whole news report of the thing as it's happening, along with pictures of the car that got smashed and people with blubber on them. To me, it's funny as heck. Anyway, so that's all the further I'm going to take you down the Oregon coast. We went down to Coos Bay. Like I said, uh, there's only one other time I've been further south than that. But these are things that I would definitely recommend hitting on the northern Oregon coast. If you go up into Washington, places there are pretty neat too. They've got Long Beach. They've got a nice kite museum there. They've got uh, a really neat beach. And, and Long Beach is a cool town. They've also got some lighthouses up that direction. We did not do that this trip, but and I'm not real familiar with what the Washington coast has to offer because I never really spent any time over there. There's also other things you can do for activities. Lots of commercial or sports fishing, uh, charters, whale watching tours. Uh, the, the possibilities are endless. But I just wanted to bring light to several of the things that, that I think people miss and kind of give you an idea of some of the things to maybe look for. Also, because the coast is on the west and there is no more land any further that direction, there's some other things that I might suggest on your way. If you're coming in kind of from the north uh, east, as you enter into Oregon, there's areas called Joseph and Enterprise. They're north of Ontario, north of Baker City, north of the interstate. I have always really liked those areas of Oregon. They're very, very scenic, very beautiful, and lots of things to do recreational-wise. And we did a podcast there on a rail ride and also at a couple of museums in the Joseph Enterprise area. Those will be available on the podcast site also. Another thing that's really cool is as you're coming down the Columbia Gorge, you've got some of the sites that are really well known, you know, like Multnomah Falls. But before you get that far down, there's a town called Arlington and a town called Bags. It's before you get to Hood River. They have a Stonehenge on the Washington side. 
You can probably see pictures if you go to my Facebook page at Where Am I To Go. We did a couple of yoga shoots for my YouTube channel, Yoga Where You're At. But we also took some really cool pictures, and I have them posted on my Facebook page of Where Am I To Go. This Stonehenge was built in 1917, I think, 1918. And it is a monument to World War I soldiers of the area. It was built by a man named Sam Hill. And it, if you don't ever get the opportunity to go to Stonehenge, the real Stonehenge, this one here is a really neat replica. It's supposedly all the same size and all of that kind of stuff. Again, a very scenic area overlooking the Columbia River and a bunch of wine fields and, or grape fields for wineries and I just it, it was it was a neat deal we happened to be there when it was a full moon and we caught a sunrise the next morning I just really enjoyed the Stonehenge and so that's that's uh, one of the things to see if you're going down the Columbia Gorge on 84 I would suggest uh, stopping at Bonneville Dam they've got a really neat fish hatchery They've got a tank with very large sturgeon in it, very large trout, and then they have the fish ladders. And you can go down underneath the water level and watch the salmon coming through the fish ladders to get over Bonneville Dam. That's a pretty cool area too. Also, if you take off just shortly after that and take what is known as the Old Highway, It'll take you past Multnomah Falls, past several other falls. It's a skinny, windy road. Do not do it if you have a fifth-wheel camper. It just the, road, the corners are too tight. But if you've got a van or something like that, very scenic drive, and it takes you up to a point that overlooks the Columbia River, sits probably a 1,000 foot up called Crown Point, and they have what is known as the Vista House up there, which is a round house. And it's made out of marble, very old, very cool, and well worth the drive. If you're in a hurry, stay on the interstate. And you can see Crown Point off to the south, up on top of a big hill. There are lots of things to do, lots of things to see. And these are some of my favorite experiences. I hope that you get out, that you spend some time journeying around, looking at things, and trying to find sites that I haven't found. I'm still looking for more. It's, that's, to me, the most fun part of a vacation, is the journey getting there. Once you've got to where you're going, it's, okay, now what do we do? But the journey getting there, taking the time and enjoying the ride is what I really like. You know, the world is full of wonder. We need to get out and explore. And everybody, have a wonder-filled day. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?